Okay, good afternoon. This is Richard Shu, host of Shoe Untied. Today, I'm very pleased to have with me as my guest, a Tim O'Reilly. Um, I'm actually at his home now in Oakland. Uh, Tim, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So, Tim, uh, you're obviously legendary in Silicon Valley, in the programming world. I went to Caltech. All my engineering friends were, thought it was super cool that I got you as a guest. Um, but let me start by asking you how you, you know, got into the tech world. You're, you know, I know you're not an engineer. Um, and so, you know, how did that even happen originally? Well, I got my first job uh, writing a computer manual on the same day that I saw my first computer. <laughs> Uh, I had a friend uh, who was a programmer who had been asked to write a manual, and uh, he was desperate for work. Uh, he was a you know, contract programmer, and uh, I was a writer. I'd written this book about Frank Herbert, the science fiction writer. Mm. And I said, well, I'll help you. Uh-huh. And uh, so we went in and sold ourselves as a team. You, know, you put a programmer and a writer together, oh, you see. can actually get much better manuals than if you have these you know, non-technical people. And it turned out actually to be true uh, because what would happen, my original training was in Greek and Latin classics. Mm -hmm. And this is a lot of parsing manuscripts. Uh, You're trying to see the patterns in the language. And I go, oh, this is like reading a spec. You know, so my (laughs) training in classics was perfect. And I had this guy who uh, I could go into a meeting with, and then I'd, I'd debrief him afterwards and say, okay, explain to me what they were saying and what, what this was all about. And, you know, I would force him to be able to put it in plain language. And, and, uh, and then when I would go, you know, a lot of technical writing in those days particularly was, you know, rewriting, you know, the, the specification written by an engineer into something that someone else could understand. Right. I found myself kind of like I'd be carefully parsing the language, going, what exactly does that mean? Anyway, in the course of, uh, of, of building up that business, which we had started together in uh, uh, 1978, I did learn about computers. I fell in love with them. In particular, I fell in love with regular expressions uh, and uh, the power of text processing. Hmm. I read one of my earliest books was called Unix Text Processing and hmm. you know, all, all the tools. And, hmm. and, and did you end up learning programming through all this process? Yeah, I mean, I, w- I never became a you know serious programmer. But for example, I wrote the uh, the accounting system for my company in DBase two in the early oh, days. Interesting. Okay. I uh, huh. I wrote uh, many many publishing tools. Uh, you know everything from a, a macro package in the Unix TROF type, typesetting language to many you know complex programs for indexing and uh, you know sort of managing doc- documents. Um, and 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 then of course in, in the early days of Unix, there was a lot of porting of programs from one mm-hmm. system to another so mm-hmm. i ended up you know kind of uh you know doing a lot of uh of uh of um you know just sort of adapting programs so that i could actually run them and and so you know i became a you know i would say a, a, a you know a journeyman programmer <laughs> i never was was really uh, uh deep but i was able to understand what people needed to know in order to make sense of a new environment. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I able to bring what in, you know, Zen they call beginner's mind. Uh, and, and, and sometimes it was as simple as I remember talking with one programmer who was writing one of the manuals uh, for a program in the X window system. And mm-hmm. he said, I can't write this chapter because, uh, this feature doesn't work. 
And I said, yes, that is what you must write. <laughs> you know, it's like because otherwise everybody is going to be struggling with this thinking that they are doing something wrong. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the fact that you have determined that the feature does not work is in fact the knowledge that you need to impart. Oh, funny. And, and thing, it's just simple things like that. And a lot of times also it was, you know, so often, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the key to, um, you know, writing a good manual was simply putting things in the right order, mm -hmm. uh, giving people an overview so that they understand the context and then they can pick up some, they can, you know, like my idea was always you write the manual in such a way that somebody gets the big picture and then they can jump in anywhere and they have context. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think I developed a style of writing manuals that became very successful and also it was because i didn't know the essence of what i did was reporting hmm. you would get people you know like i i uh you know i wrote the first ever unix system uh administration manual it was like because hey this company i was right i was working at i said gee i actually proposed it and and uh, uh got the company to do it because they never thought of it i said gee when all of us have problems we go to this guy tom texera and he tells us what to do I go what are our customers going to do? We need to, to debrief Tom Texera and write down what he knows. You know? And uh, so, and that was really the, the, the way we did a lot of our early books. Um, you know, when I did uh, my book on UUCP, which is the early Unix, Unix copy protocol that Usenet ran over that, you know, kind of was a predecessor to the internet. You know, I, I basically wrote the first version based on the systems that we had. And I had written, done a lot of, uh, you know, you know, it involved a lot of sort of custom work with your hardware setup and writing these chat scripts, as they call for interacting with another system and getting through its logins. Uh, but I didn't have all the equipment. And so the first edition of the book was something like 80 pages. And over the next uh, few years, it, it grew to several hundred pages. And it was all people sending me in. Oh, you know, you, you haven't uh, you have to write this kind of uh, script for an ATT uh, you know, 5610 port contender. Mm -hmm. You know, this is how it works on the Plexa such and such. You know, oh, here's the right way to, you know, here's a, 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 a um, you know, a tip for the best way to run cables through walls, you know, and we just, so I kind of crowdsourced it. And, mm. and of course that really came to a, a you know, uh, one of my favorite books ever was a book I did in 1992 called uh, Unix Power Tools, uh, where I'd kind of become exposed to the web. Uh, and I was like, I want to do something like that in print. And it was basically a collection of, of uh, maybe about a thousand tips gleaned from Usenet, mm. uh, you know, with, with probably two or three hundred authors where it was like, OK, let's tell the story of all the little things that people don't know mm -hmm. uh, that make the difference between being a, an average user and a power user. Mm. So anyway, I, I, you know, I, I think I um, coming at this fresh helped me uh, get get good at it. But the other thing was an uh, approach to business, I think. Uh, I wanted to be useful. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was interesting, while all of the people who eventually became my competitors were always looking, well, what are the hot topics? We were just like, hey, there's no manual for VI. Oh, there's, no, there's no manual for Sednog. There's no manual for the Unix shell. <laughs> you know, so we basically went and we, we were just trying, you know, we were a tech writing consulting company that said in our spare time, let's write manuals for the tools that we use that don't have any. And, and of course, because Unix was a research uh, operating system, um, 
you know, a lot of all the documentation might be just a research paper, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so trying to serve, and that's also later on in my business, that's how I, I grew new parts of the business. Um, uh, our conference business really came, you know, in 1996 when I realized that our best-selling, you know, books were all about the Perl programming language. And, you know, there was now this big, new, hot, shiny conference about Java, you know, Java One. And they said, there's no conference for Perl. Mm-hmm. You know, let's bring that community together. And it was really not the idea that this was a business opportunity. It was the idea that there was an opportunity to serve that community. And so we've always had uh, uh, that attitude. Uh, another uh, great example is we launched Safari, which is now really the heart of our business, our online learning platform, originally launched as an ebook platform. Because I said, if the publishing industry doesn't get its act together around ebooks, uh, you know they're going to be toast long term. And, and this is seven years before the Kindle. We've been evangelizing ebooks, and we said, you know, there were all these business models where pennies publishers were getting pennies on the dollar, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to be part of somebody's platform. And I go, this is going to be, you know, the center of the game. You can't give away your content. You know, we have to, and so we built a, a, a business model. We invited in our biggest competitor. They literally had a group internally called the O'Reilly Killers, uh, <laughs> and we said, "No, uh, don't try to kill us. Come join us." You know, in in this new area, and we had a very successful joint venture for 14 years until we bought them out in 2014. Mm-hmm. But uh, the other thing that I think really distinguishes us from the typical Silicon Valley uh, company is that we never had investors. Mm. Uh, we basically, from day one, uh, we, we were funded by our customers. I started the company with $500 worth of, you know, used furniture and, and equipment. And, uh, you know, we paid for everything out of, of cash flow. And uh, we basically built the publishing business on the back of, you know, revenue and, and profits from our consulting business. Uh, when we said, oh, publishing's better than consulting, we dropped doing that. Uh, we built our, you know, conference business out of, you know, with profits and, and Safari with profits from our, our publishing business. We, we launched the first ever, uh, you know, um, a web portal, GNN, the first site on the web to have uh, advertising, uh, you know, with profits from publishing. Uh, and, and we grew it to a point where we said, oh, the, the market's taking off. And I sold it because I, I said, I don't want to take in venture capital. So I always grew it with customer money. And, and, and that's really not very fashionable, but it leads you to a very different kind of business. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little about, um, I know you're credited with the term open source software. Tell me a little bit how that came about, because that's another sort of legendary thing that's well known about. Yeah, you. although it's often misreported. Uh, I, I came up with neither the term open source software nor the term web 2.0. <laughs> but in each case... You're credited I, for it? No. In each case, I did something that I think may be more important. Okay. I explained what it really meant. And here's here's how my connection with open source happened. Okay. Uh, I was obviously the preeminent publisher of books on free software. That was what we did. Uh-huh. And what I noticed was there was a lot of rhetoric about free software, uh, which was coming from the Free Software Foundation. Uh-huh. And it left out half of the world. Uh, you know, it was focused on, uh, you know, uh, basically, you know, Richard Stallman's vision for the GNU right, operating right, system. Right. Uh-huh. It was focused on Emacs. It was focused on GCC and GDB and the, the Free Software Foundation's uh, um, products. And then it was focused on Linux because Linux became uh, the most, you know, well-known uh, um, 
program using that same set of licenses. But they never talked about the world of the internet. Mm-hmm. They didn't talk about, wait, uh, the, the uh, World Wide Web, which was put into the public domain. They didn't talk about Berkeley Unix, which had a much more inclusive uh, license. They didn't talk about Apache. They didn't talk about uh, uh, the X Window system. So, or, you know, or, or only to the extent that they were part of, part of Linux. And I said, oh, we're drawing the wrong map. We're drawing a line around this that has to do with a particular licensing philosophy. And so I organized a meeting, which I call, originally called the Freeware Summit, where I said, look, the Internet people and the, the Linux people and the Perl people and the Python people all have something in common. Uh, we need to find out what it is. And it was actually at that meeting that the term open source software was proposed, not for the very first time. It was proposed a few weeks earlier by Christine Peterson in a, a, a separate meeting. Um, Eric Raymond, who, who had been at that first meeting, brought it to the meeting I organized. So effectively, I was sort of trying to say, hey, there's a story to be told here. Uh, the name came up. There were several names proposed. Uh, Michael Tiemann, uh, who was still at Red Hat, I believe, but uh, at the time was uh, at, you know at Cygnus Solutions, which was a sort of a tools provider for GCC and GDB and the like. Uh, you know, proposed sourceware. Mm-hmm. You know, but everybody was saying, "Hey, this this term free software uh, has a lot of baggage." You know, mm-hmm. I remember Linus Torvalds at that meeting saying, uh, "I didn't realize there were two meanings of free in English." <laughs> 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 and uh, uh, and so, uh, you know, what I really did was I brought together a community and I told the story through that community. And because I brought together a different community than mm. had traditionally been all on the same map, mm. I, I, I completely reshaped the meaning of this new term. And I also did the, basically the advocacy work because I'd earlier done a bunch of advocacy early in my you know career. When we published the first popular book on the internet, I had the great good fortune to hire a guy named Brian Irwin, who'd been the director of activism for the Sierra Club. And uh, he said, look, we're not going to promote the book. We're going to use the book to promote the internet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so he really taught me about uh, kind of advocacy-driven marketing. And so when I organized this uh, um, uh, freeware summit where the name open source was voted on. I had already set it up to have a press conference associated with it. Cause what the story I wanted to tell was all of these people are, you know, they have something in common. Uh, they are the dominant programs of the internet and they're all free. You know, so I, you know, I kind of went, you know, like I, my, my riff about all this, which is very, very different than the free software foundation's riff was, Hey, look, you know, what are the most, uh, mission critical programs on the internet? You know, and, and people would, you know, I remember this set of reporters and, and they all scratched their heads and I said, well, you know, you know, first of all, there's the fundamental TCP IP protocol. Uh, guess what? That's free software. It was developed. Uh, but then there's this thing called the domain name system. You know, you New York, New York Times, you know, the reason why you have NewYorkTimes.com rather than this, you know, funky, you know, IP address is because of the work of this long-haired programmer here. Uh, you know, so uh, there's this program you never heard of called Bind, the Berkeley Internet Name Demon. Mm. It's free software. Guess what? Uh, oh, you, do you send email? This this long-haired guy wrote that software. It, it routes seventy uh, percent of the, the internet's email. It's called SendMail. Uh, you know, oh, this long-haired guy is part of the team of people who started the world's most popular, uh, you know, um, 
uh, web server Apache. And I went down the list and I, I got to Linus, uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of, and then, oh, by the way, and then there's Linux, you know, but it was really kind of like this, all of these people, what do they have in common? They've all created this world changing software hmm. uh, that's being widely adopted. So you have to let go of the old narrative which is that free software is this rebel thing which is hostile to you know commerce and understand that free software is in fact the infrastructure of the next generation of of applications on the internet mm -hmm. and so it was sort of in some sense defining the meaning of the movement in a very different way mm -hmm. uh, than it had been defined previously mm -hmm. now tell me do you Tim, tell me do you think of yourself really as a you know entrepreneur first and then a publisher second or really a publisher hard who's also an entrepreneur I think of myself as neither of those things. Uh, uh, first of all, I don't think of myself as a publisher uh, uh, very much at all anymore because uh, that's really only about 20% of my business. I see. Uh, I think of myself primarily as, uh, you know, an advocate mm -hmm. and, and, a, you know, I sometimes describe myself as a map maker. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I try to, you know, look at the world and say, what are we getting wrong? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Web 2.0 is the same thing. Uh, Dale Doherty, uh, who worked for me for many years, now the CEO of Maker Media, which we spun out in 2012, um, was the one who actually came up with the term Web 2.0. But it was it was we I applied it to an idea I'd been pushing for the previous you know four years, which was we're building an internet operating system. Uh, you know this. You know, I was sort of saying, what do web services and, uh, you know, file sharing services like Napster and uh, distributed computation have in common? They're all, you know, the first signs that the Internet and not the PC is becoming uh, uh, the new platform. And we have to understand the rules of that platform. And I'd run a conference called uh, eTech, the Emerging Technologies Conference, uh, that was really focused on this emergent Internet operating system. And then when... Uh, Dale was in a brainstorming meeting with a guy named Craig Klein from another company. They wanted to partner with us in some way uh, to build, do a conference together. And Dale said, "Well, let's do a conference on the second coming of the of the uh, dot com bust of the web after the dot com bust, and we'll call it Web 2.0. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then I seized on that and said, "Well, let me wrap all my ideas about the way that, that the internet is becoming a pl the platform." in that idea mm. and uh and, and so articulated ideas like the data was going to be the new lever of competitive advantage so i was kind of drawing a map of the world and then seizing on a term that somebody came up with mm. uh to, you know because you you kind of go oh people this is one that people are responding to and you know that's kind of what i'm trying to do now where i'm, I'm focused on uh you know i've called it the next economy i've called it the wtf economy i've I, you know like how do we think about the way that that uh, you know algorithmic systems and ai are reshaping our economy and you know the, the right name hasn't arrived yet but i've been sort of trying to map out some of the key ideas and shaping the dialogue and that's a lot of what i did in my book uh you know that i published last year called wtf what's the future and why it's up to us hmm. uh, nice name Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, do you ever think that maybe you're uh, I mean it's interesting how you were saying that you you know gravitated towards even though you weren't a programmer do you think maybe at some level you're sort of a programmer at heart or that if you'd gone back you, you would have been oh absolutely you, you and, and been in a fact programmer? yeah I, I think I, I, I got great I've gotten great joy out of programming mm -hmm. uh, I, I, you know it's one of the most immersive activities uh, you know that anyone uh, can uh, 
participate in. I, I still remember one time I would have to do these all nighters and I, 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 you know, I used to, you know, I had this, this is in the early days of the company. I had, uh, my offices were in this renovated barn next to my house in Newton, Massachusetts, the middle of winter. And, uh, I was working on some problem. I was really, you know, publishing tools problem and programming. And I suddenly, you know, I was in my t-shirt and I suddenly was like, suddenly woke up mm-hmm. at four in the morning and realized I was just frozen solid. <laughs> you know, the, the, you know, like the, the, the heat had been turned off and I was just sitting there, you know, I was just kind of so engaged, you know, you're kind of coding and looking at, did you get it right? And then you're kind of, you know, you're debugging and figuring out what's going on and, and I, I just took, become so totally insensitive to my body that That's I had allowed funny. myself literally to, you know, my core temperature. And I got sick as a dog. But, you know, it's so immersive and it's such a delight. Anyway, uh, and, and I, I miss that. I've actually been thinking I, I really now that I have a little more time as I have people running my company day to day. Actually, I'm, I, I'm I've been doing two things. One is, uh, you know, really kind of. Uh, spending a lot of time learning about economics because I'm really uh, interested and in, in concerned with our economic paradigm and how technology plays into it. But also, you know, um, going back to programming and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, uh, you know, working on, uh, uh, you know, as I'm, I'm doing my research for my next book, I'm going, well, actually, I need to do a lot more uh, sort of automated uh you know, analysis and, and, uh, you know, data science related to some of the topics I'm interested in. So I'm, I'm, uh, kind of, uh, refreshing myself and, and all that. And it's, it's really fun. Do you have the topic for your next book or it's still, it's well, still in it, formulation? It, it, there's two or three different threads that I'm pulling on mm-hmm. and, um, they're interrelated. Uh, they really have to do with, uh, platform economies in mm-hmm. some sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, the uh, ideas that I, I talk a lot about, it comes from the title of a, a book by Nobel Prize winning economist Alvin Roth. It's called uh, Who Gets What and Why? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the point I make in a lot of my talks today is that you know, we now have these algorithmic systems that are making that determination. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the design of, of the marketplace, you know, uh, you know, Google's algorithms shape who gets attention. Facebook's algorithms shape who gets attention. Uber's algorithm figure out what's the, the allocation of value between passengers, drivers, and the platform itself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, getting that, those algorithms right uh, is, uh, you know, one of the big topics I talk about. Mm-hmm. I, I just gave a talk yesterday to the uh, National Association of Business Economists uh, for their, their tech uh, conference and it's really focused on ways that you know in, in some ways it's very op- opposed to the traditional silicon valley mindset which is winner takes all mm-hmm. race to the top and i'm like no if you're building if you're if you're becoming a world spanning platform that people depend on you actually have to look after your marketplace and so in some sense, this question of platform economics bleeds into the question of antitrust, bleeds into the question of how do we tell when a tech ecosystem is uh, effectively out of kilter, which, of course, bleeds into questions of the macro economy because the nations fail for the same reason the tech platforms do. Mm-hmm. And so I've been looking at things like, uh, you know, what's Google's share of the total ad revenue on the web? 
uh, you know, how is, you know, is Google, for example, competing with its ecosystem in the same way that Microsoft famously did? Mm -hmm. You know, we all remember that it used to be, uh, you know, uh, a market for word processors, for spreadsheets, Mm -hmm. for databases, and then there was only Microsoft Office. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and you think, if you actually look at Google, you realize how many things we used to use independent apps for that now are just part of Google search results. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Good for consumers, but a whole lot of people got put out of business. Now, but there's another side to that, which is that Google then went on to create new opportunities, first with, again, using open source and and a sort of generous act uh, to to sort of create new opportunities in mobile with Android. Mm Mm-hmm. And also with uh, you know Chromebooks, where they've really uh, been very clever that way, and and more recently with uh, you know open sourcing TensorFlow and their big push to democratize AI. So I think they recognize that as they consume the the older market of the web, they have to create new markets uh, for developers, which Microsoft didn't really do. You know, they just kind of took the, the the best of what was created, and they were the only player. But I think it's still a, that's a risky strategy, and, and I actually argue for a different strategy, which and I, which I've tried to practice in my own company, which is uh, that uh, you have to actually think about the ongoing health of your ecosystem, and you don't have to be a giant platform to understand this. Mm-hmm. You know, if I look, if you look at the business strategy at O'Reilly Media. It's actually been a real driver for us, and it's been a really good thing. Silicon Valley talks all the time about focus on the user, but if you're a platform, focus on the the supplier and the needs of the supplier can actually lead you to just as much business creativity. So let me give you a concrete example. Start with our Safari platform. You know, when we I, I mentioned earlier, we started it because we said, oh, you know, if publishing is going to survive the transition to eBooks. Uh, you know, there has to be a platform that has good economics for the people who are producing the content. Mm-hmm. So we set out, you know, now, you know, almost 20 years ago to build that ecosystem and we invited other people into it. And we basically uh, are now have this platform where, you know, the, the, the sort of largest provider of uh, subscription based ebook content. We also then added video content. We added things like live online training. But it's all with this notion that we're trying to create revenue opportunities for an ecosystem of providers. Now, we are also a provider on that platform, so we're also competing, just like you know, Microsoft or Google competes with their ecosystem. Mm-hmm. But we're very mindful of that. And it really came to the fore, uh, and, and, and I thought a really nice way, um, uh, last year, we introduced this new feature of live online training, which was very, very successful. Now, the revenue of the platform is is allocated among the participants, um, you know, on the basis of time spent uh, and the value of what was produced. So, you know, if, if it's a you know a book and somebody spends an hour with it, uh, it's it's you know uh, some algorithm for time, you know, pages viewed and time spent for a video, uh, you know. You know, so it's it's basically you know usage you know times the, the the price of the of the thing. We looked at this. We introduced this new feature, live online training. We evangelized to all our partners. This we think this is going to be hot. You should do it. Uh, but when we rolled it out, Pearson, our biggest partner, rolled out ten trainings. We rolled out a hundred, and the next month their revenue fell by half mm-hmm. because this was a, a product that had a, a relatively high price and people spent a lot of time at it 
And we went, whoa, you know, we're taking too much of the revenue from the ecosystem. And so we actually, we actually overcompensated. We, we actually, we, we lowered the price of our trainings so that everybody else's revenue rose hmm. uh, until they could catch up. And then we, we gradually increased our, our, you know, prices again uh, as they brought more uh, product to the platform. But because we were, you know, we're really mindful of the fact that if we don't create incentives for content creators, then they will go somewhere else or they will stop producing. Mm-hmm. And so that, that idea of who gets what and why is actually a business imperative that drives our thinking. Whereas in the typical Silicon Valley model, in the typical, you know, Western economic model, you know, you just kind of go, well, we assume that growth goes on forever. And we don't realize that the externality of who we displace uh, can really hurt us. Well, Tim, this has been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your taking the time when you do finish this next book. I'd love to invite you back and tell us about it. That sounds great. Thank you. This is Richard Shu and Tim O'Reilly. Thanks. Thanks.